Well, welcome, everybody. Today, we have a, a very special guest on Unfettered Conversations. We've got Steve Stout, and Steve Stout is the founder and CEO of United Masters, and um, it's great that we have him today because he's just coming off really a landmark and, and a very kind of rare deal with Apple, where uh, he's just raised $50 million uh, with Apple as the lead investor uh, and, you know, with a corresponding commercial deal, which in, you know, the music business is obviously extremely significant because of uh, Apple Music's presence, as well as um, Beats headphones and, and all the other kind of associated Apple products that go with it. So, Steve, welcome and congratulations. Ben, thank you so much, man. Um, both Ben and Mark, thank you so much, because, um, you know, I remember early... The, the early beginnings of this idea and, you know, uh, Ben first speaking to you and, and then, you know, Mark quickly coming on board and supporting the vision of the idea of helping independent artists and, and, and just all the, the help that Andreessen Hartz provided me early on. So to get to this place four and a half years later, I mean, you got to know how proud I am and, and how proud I am that you guys are with me on the whole journey. So this is a great day. All right, excellent, excellent. So, you know, one of the things that uh, Mark and I kind of talk about always at the firm, which is kind of really interesting in your case is, you know, we look for entrepreneurs that have a secret, meaning they know something about the world that almost nobody else does. So they figured something out that's original and unique. And, you know, <laughs> because sometimes you know, entrepreneurs are very good at selling, they can fake that. So the other thing is, did they earn that secret? Did they have something in their past, something in their career where they would have gone through some process where they would have earned that knowledge that uh, can build an entire company? And, you know, in your case, Steve, it's really interesting because you've kind of earned the secret over the last 30 years. Um, and so maybe uh, we could start by you just kind of taking us through your career and how this idea evolved, um, you know, kind of maybe even start at the very beginning uh, with managing Kid and Play and your entry into the music <laughs> wow, industry. Wow, Ben. You don't even <laughs> want me to, you can take this thing in chapters, Ben. I mean, you don't have to just lay <laughs> yeah. me out like that. But, um, you know, look, I started as a road manager for our recording group Kid and Play. They were both recording artists and then they got into television. Um, and as a road manager, your duties are to be, you know, check them into hotels. You're like the advanced guy on everything. And that's, they, they gave me that early opportunity, and I learned a lot about the business. One of the things that I learned early on, and this was, um, was like, it, the, the music business was so um, unfair at times that it's like it became systematic. So it was happening at the top of record companies, and it trickled all the way down the line, down to producers getting robbed for credit and, you know, writers getting robbed for publishing. I mean, the, the industry is built on an ecosystem of unfairness. Um, and that's the yeah. secret of the industry. And as I've gone on in the, you know, as, I, as I've grown from 21 years old and at 25 years old, I became a sort of an executive at Sony. And then um, after that, I went to Interscope. Big moment for me was when we did the 
I did the soundtrack to Men in Black. I was the executive producer. And it was a great moment because Will Smith had come back um, and, you know, he sold 10 million albums with this soundtrack after his career had kind of got lost. Uh, he came back and sold 10 million copies. But the glasses were super successful. And there was no bounty or, or any recognition that the album and the music is what helped help sell the glasses. So this idea that culture was a currency that was driving a product wasn't connecting at all. In fact, and the, the record company didn't ask for any, you know, anything on the glasses. Mm -hmm. And the, the, of course, they weren't giving anything because no one asked. And it was just like, man. So it wasn't it, even a product placement deal in the movie. They they just it was wore a, the it glasses. was a product it was a product placement deal in the movie. But then, like, it just kept on going. I mean, Will Smith should have been gotten paid a gazillion dollars for that. <laughs> right, I mean, he right, brought right, the glasses back. He but, was so cool. <laughs> And that's what moved the glasses. Well, he said, I make that these look good. Totally he, yeah. he said, I make these look good. I mean, yeah. that literally was the line. And um, <laughs> the bottom line was this idea that there was no affiliate deal between Will Smith and those glasses or the record company and those glasses really made me stare at that idea for a long time. And it was the product placement company, the agency, in which I've gotten got close with after that. And subsequently ended up leaving the record business when I was 30 and going and becoming a partner at that agency. And the first thing I did, because I felt like if they thought that was a coincidence that Will Smith sold those glasses, um, I could actually do more for the record business outside the record business. And that was probably the big aha moment for me is when I left the business, I knew that I could do much more. And but when you early... left the but when you left the business, because let's talk about that for a second, because that was a really kind of unusual, it, it, an unusual move for a normal person, um, but a kind of common move for a great entrepreneur, which is, you were at the time you're a rec ex executive, you were what 31, 32 years old, and you were making like several million dollars a year in salary. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I was making. These, this is a fact. I was making yeah. two and a half million dollars a year and I left the record business. And when I went into the agency, I got equity and $150,000 a year. And I knew that if I didn't do that move at that time, I would never do that move later in life when I had a family and kids, et cetera. So I had to make that decision right there and right then. And I did that. I mean, yeah, it, and that was with no experience in the agency business though. Right, you your no, whole career was in music. Yeah, I I just yeah I just I just felt like I could make a difference. I I just knew that. I mean, it was something about equity that sounded special to me, and <laughs> um, I, I didn't know the real value of what it could be, but I just knew that I could do. It was unbelievable that Will Smith that those the movie and like didn't make a ton of money off those glasses. Yeah that I felt like if I did anything, I, it would be worth it. Like if I did, all I had to do was fix that one thing and it would be, <laughs> uh, 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 you know, a game changer for the industry itself. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. Actually, it's so unusual that you valued equity coming out of the entertainment business. Actually, Mark, um, you might want to describe, because we met with a bunch of guys in the movie business years ago about equity. 
Yeah, there was this big, uh, there was this moment um, with the Hollywood writers' strike, um, which was in 2008 or somewhere around there, where the, the writers yeah. all went on strike, and, and basically, like new, new production basically shut down, and so you had all these incre incredibly talented people, you know, who at least in theory like had the opportunity to plan new businesses, you know. And by the way, you know, tech was starting to work, and broadband was starting to work, and you know, streaming was starting to work, and you, you could kind of tell there was like a revolution of foot. You know, kind of at the intersection of tech and media. So maybe it was there was sort of this this concept developed that maybe it was time for kind of the Silicon Valley model of equity finance, venture finance startups to be implemented in Hollywood. And of course, the you know it's kind of the point that Steve's making. But you know, the, the prospect of that, of course, is you know the creative professionals owning their own work, right? And then creative professionals really benefiting from the downstream economics, right? As you know, sort of you know, profit sharing over a very long period of time. You know, as, and 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 participating in the the creation of equity value as opposed to being paid, you know, basically huge fees. Um, and, and there was a actually, the Steve might enjoy this. The, the peak moment. Uh, I, I went to this conference down in, in LA at that time that one of the top entertainment law firms kind of put on to try to basically they were trying to get their clients to do this. And so, you know, those of us from from kind of the tech industry were kind of describing what the possibility might be. And actually, the whole thing kind of slammed to a halt. A couple two hours in, uh, John Singleton, the great the great film director. Um, stood up and looked at us and said, um, you know, th this all sounds great. I just want to know uh, who's going to pay my $10 million fee, right? <laughs> <laughs> and, that, and that was kind of that. And so mm -hmm. it's right, basically, right, the classic trade-off, right? $10 million, uh, $10 million upfront fee to direct a movie as compared to an equity stake in the movie, right? Or as compared to an equity stake in the studio. Um, and, so, and, and, and so here we are, you know, whatever, 12 years later, 13 years later, and, and this, this still is like a big fundamental divide, I think, between the two cultures. Yeah. And well, then it's, so that's crazy that you crossed the culture and you took the equity. 100% no. Crossed the culture in a big way. Because I was really interested, uh, uh, Ben, and I was unhappy. I also knew I was unhappy uh, as, an, as an employee. Um, I wanted to do things that were different. I realized, uh, and I remember saying to myself, like, because I was in hip-hop music and hip-hop was just selling, CDs was selling by anybody. It means you had one song, you would go platinum. If you had one hit record, you didn't really have to do much besides get one hit and people would be forced to buy the entire album. Um, that the industry didn't know the difference between good and great. So I felt like I was great, but there were other people also making millions of dollars that just happened to be good. But they were in hip hop where it was selling regardless of whether you were good or great. And I wanted to go do something different. Um, equity did sound like a, 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 a good path for me. And I went inside this agency, uh, learned the business. We ended up selling that company uh, for $187 million. And I was 31 years old. I remember thinking, man, I could live off the interest for the rest of my life. <laughs> you know, I, I remember doing yeah. that stupid math. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, that idea. Um, and uh, I had a, you know, I had a non, I didn't even have a key man clause. It was weird. They didn't give me a key man clause. They didn't realize, you know, the significance of what I was doing. And um, uh, two years later, I started translation. And it was about translating culture for Fortune 500 companies. That was the idea. That was sort of the mission statement. I didn't even realize it was a, mission statement. And um, for some of my early clients was Carly Fiorina when she was at HP and we did work around printing and McDonald's in which we worked on I'm Loving It. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The I'm Loving It uh, was uh, such a big campaign, but you had, uh, 
<laughs> I hate to bring this up, but it's such a good story. Uh, you got a call during the Super Bowl um, from uh, McDonald's, <laughs> the NFL or McDonald's, or no, 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 no. Who, yeah. no, it was the big thing, you know. You you remember all the stories, yeah, <laughs> regardless yeah, of so I, good, how yeah. long ago I told you. Yeah, I got a phone call because it was the, uh, you know, the, the campaign was rolling. We got Justin Timberlake in the campaign, and you know, all that was great. And then all of a sudden, the Super Bowl came. I'm watching it, and the Janet Jackson breast incident happens, and I'm watching it like, holy shit! And I don't even realize that I'm implicated in this. <laughs> I'm watching it like a fan, and I'm like. Don't even realize that my phone's about to ring, and my phone started ringing. Um, you know that I brought, you know, you know Justin to McDonald's, and it it just turned into a thing. But it all it all got worked out over 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 time. I think it was you know it was obviously blown up a lot, and um, it worked out over time. But that that was really the beginning of me understanding the advertising business, and really, but more importantly, Ben, and we speak about this a lot. Me understanding the value of culture in impacting um, uh, goods and services. And I'll, I'll go from that. And then it was literally after that, um, I went right into, um, you know, I thought that uh, uh, Jay-Z could sell sneakers. Um, I thought that artists could sell sneakers. No one thought that, that rappers or uh, people who move culture could sell sneakers because the idea was that sneakers were used for athletic performance. And the entire industry believed that. And I knew for a fact back then that, you know, even more now, it sounds crazy that kids were wearing sneakers with no intent to perform in it at all. Just that the, <laughs> yeah. the, 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 the shoelace and the bottom of the sneaker matched their hat and their shirt. And like, it was, Nike didn't own the category of non-performance so why don't we go after the non-performance category, which was lifestyle? And um, there was nobody who, the epitome of, of lifestyle who didn't break a sweat was Jay-Z. And we did the Jay-Z sneaker, and then we did the um, 50 Cent G-Unit sneaker, and then we did the Pharrell ice cream sneaker. And all three of them were tremendous successes. Um, and that's when I really broke through um, as a marketer, understanding how to... Uh, position um, and value cultural capital in 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 selling goods and services. Hey Steve, I'm sorry, but before we leave, before we leave the um, the, the Super Bowl, um, I, I, oh. I need, so first so, so first of all, I, I need you to. I need you to know. I know you spend time in Clubhouse, but it's 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 a formal uh, requirement of, of having an account on Clubhouse. You have to always tell the truth. <laughs> Um, and so uh, with, with that in mind, you know, it's been, it's been a long time now uh, since the famous uh, Janet Jackson, Justin Timberlake, Super Bowl incident. Um, I, we, we, we now need to know the truth. Um, the whole thing was staged, right? No, you know what? I'm going to tell you the truth, Mark. I did not. I, I still don't know. I have no idea if he didn't know or they both were in on it. I never I never, I never knew that. Didn't ask the question. I, I also don't want to pretend I was that close to that, you know, performance. You know, I did a deal with Justin Timberlake to be sort of the brand spokesperson, and we did a campaign around his tour. But I certainly mm -hmm. wasn't close enough to be able to, to, you know, know the back story to that. And I, and I never asked because of the sensitivity around it. To be honest with you.
You know that that sounds like the kind. If that sounds like the kind of thing that if you were running the cover up, that that's the kind of thing you would say. <laughs> I understand that. You know, Mark. Mark, I appreciate I appreciate your candor. You're you're turning into Charles Barkley. <laughs> he is a hero. He is a hero of the modern time. I, I take that as a compliment. Okay. <laughs> That's good. So, so as you figured that out, kind of what were both kind of the limitations of the kind of of the translation model, and then what was the opportunity that you saw? in music um, that led to United Masters? Okay, well, two things, Ben. The, the, the opportunity was no one knew how to quantify the value of culture. There was no metric to qualify the impact that it made. Um, so it was this quotient that would drive sales and drive more some urgency. Like it created a sense of urgency where things would sell out quickly. Um, but there was no way to value it so that you knew who had cultural impact and who didn't. It wasn't just famous people who had cultural impact. Cultural impact and fame are completely two different subjects. And, and I knew that very, very early. So that was the one uh, uh, aspect of the opportunity. Um, the other thing was that during that time, we're talking about 2004, 2005, the MP3 was destroying the music business. In fact, music was coming out of faucets for free. So no, the music business kept declining and declining quickly. So looking for these opportunities outside the business became more and more important uh, for artists. It was a way to subsidize revenue. It was a way to subsidize, you know, the the the, the industry bottom falling out. Um, so I sat there and I watched that. And as time went on, it really was the beginning of the, the formulation of United Masses, because I was always trying to connect um, how could you create a system in which cultural currency and music uh, um, would be quantified and linked together so that you could sell music and goods and services simultaneously off of the same understanding, off of the same values. Um, but there was no clear way to do it. Remember, this was prior to streaming, so it wasn't mm -hmm. like there was a digital solution at all. We would come up with things like, you know, all kind of different ideas that weren't truly measurable, mm -hmm. but every year it got closer and closer to a way to measure it. And then when streaming happened, it became very clear that there was an opportunity on the horizon. Yeah, you know, that's very interesting because you said something earlier that we see all the time in the technology industry, which is um, <laughs> companies no longer know the difference between good and great. And anytime you see that in a company where you have like really mediocre people running enormous functions, that's usually a sign that, you know, the, the company has really aged, the products are terrible, but they have a distribution lock-in that's so powerful that they can just keep running and everybody there makes lots of money and all these kinds of things. And it, it you know, you always look, is there a way to break that distribution so that you can run right through them with a better product? And well, it sounds like that's kind of what you saw once streaming happened, that opportunity started well, let to me, look real. 
Well, listen, I, I really, first of all, I, I really want to go through this. I, I, I the privilege of having this discussion with you guys in front of all of these beautiful people. I don't want to waste um, any, any, skip any step in this. Not only are you correct, Ben, in that idea of that, you know, lazy and, you know, when you have a monopoly on distribution, what happened in the music business, and there's a documentary coming out on this, that the record companies owned the distribution manufacturing plants. So not only did they, you know, cut the deal with the artists, but they also made the CD and they distributed it out of these plants that they owned around the country. There was a period in time when the music was getting leaked. Like, remember, to put out an album back then, you needed like two or three month lead time for a big album because you had to press, you know, two million copies to get it out in the market all around the world. So you needed the lead time. And what was happening was you'd put out a you you you'd put the master in to get these duplicates made. And between the time you put it in and then like two months later when you released it, it was already all over Napster. And no one knew how it was getting leaked. And it wasn't like a bad copy. It was as crispy as crispy can get. It was a very, very, very good copy. Yeah. And 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 it got so bad that the that the music companies first were looking at the engineers. They would bring armed guards to the, to the <laughs> studio. They would bring armed guards to the mastering plants. And long story uh, short, there was a guy out of one of the distribution centers who wore a big belt buckle because it was in style back then and would yeah. flip the CD behind the belt buckle and walk out <laughs> and went to like a barbershop. And one of the guys at the barbershop was hooked up on the internet and would put, release the music and literally... What there's a book about this called um, uh, one guy who like ruined the music business, who stole the music business. And, <laughs> so, so now listen to this. This is where what you talked about really kicks in now. When the record companies couldn't find the leak, security, no, they couldn't find it. They never found that it was a guy stealing it in his belt buckle. What they did was they sold the pressing plants to a third party company and gave them a five-year contract. So what they did was they said, we can't figure out this problem. Let's sell the pressing plants now. When they sold the pressing plants, the-, the That's the, like a the, Goldman the, Sachs move. You get out right the piracy, <laughs> the piracy went insane because the new buy, the, the buyers had no idea there was a leaky bucket. So yeah. the, the, the idea of leaking music and selling it early and all those things, there was no protection around it. And that really accelerated the, or accelerated um, the, the rise of MP3s becoming the format because the CD was just becoming duplicated and stolen and pirated, like without any, um, there was no, there was no hold was barred uh, in stopping it from, from gaining traction. So that, yeah. So that's what a big, that's what a big company yeah. does with lazy people to solve a problem. They sell it. Yeah. <laughs> they sell it to a sucker. Yeah. So, so then how did, you know, kind of moving from that period and then streaming emerges, how did you get, you know, kind of all the way to the idea that, um, you know, translation needed to kind of transform and create this new thing, United Masters, that, we're really the record company 
becomes the foundation supported by the advertising yeah. agency? Like, how did you get Thank to that? Thank you. Yeah, Ben. Because record companies came up with a new idea. When the record business started to go into that tailspin, they went. They came up with a new idea called 360 deals. 360 deals, Mark, check this one out, were go to an artist and say, what we're going to do is we're going to pay you X amount of money up front, and we're going to get a piece of everything. When you go on tour, when you sell a T-shirt, everything you do, we're going to give you more money up front to buy 360 rights. Now, meanwhile, the record companies did not have 360 departments. They didn't even have a touring department or somebody that could do these merch deals, but they gave you the money up front and they bought those rights. Yeah. Artists went for it initially, but was but but really knew this is going a little too far. Like, I, like you, you invested in me as an artist. Now you have to own everything about me. Um, but they these were the deals. And some companies said, if you don't sign a 360 deal, we won't give you a, a, a deal at all. I mean, they were they were forcing this on everybody. So it was during that time, and music was going digital that people were coming to me for a lot of these brand deals, and I'm like, not only do they need brand deals, but they also needed CRM tools because as music went digital, I'm looking at every other digital product, and you know the 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 gift and the curse was if you sell something online. Yes, you had to sell it at, uh, at the cheapest price possible because the consumer would find the lowest price to buy the same item. However, because you had CRM tools and you had information on that customer, remarketing and selling them the second, the third, the fourth, the fifth, the tenth item would be much cheaper because you didn't have to find that customer. And it, list, it was everywhere in digital products except for music. So my idea was like, so you'd release an album in... <laughs> March, and then like have to find every customer who streamed it in March. If you release another album in November, you'd have to find those people all over again because you had no way of remarketing to those folks. And it was like, this is completely upside down. Um, record companies are taking all the money from these different buckets without supplying those services, and they're not even supplying CRM tools so the artists had no idea who their fans were. It was completely ready for disruption. Yeah, no, that's really like an amazing kind of industry structure where the financing company, essentially, which is what the record company is in that case, because they bought the rights, um, actually has the customer data, not the person who makes the product. <laughs> like, I'm trying to even imagine how you could function in another industry where the guys who make the product have no idea who the customer is. That's a, like, well, well, well you got, you're starting with a yeah. few different, so, so let's add on top yeah. of that, that the guy who makes the product also doesn't own the IP. Add on top of that, that the guy who, um, you know, who makes the product doesn't own the product at all. Right. Yeah. So doesn't even own their image and likeness. So it's completely upside down completely upside down. And this was the record business. I mean, this was um, why there needed to be some version of the music business that was shifted because it had just gone too far. And like, as music had gone digital, there was just this um, 
surplus of people who would make music because you know the, the 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 cost of making a song and making a video and all those things were coming down in cost. So this barrier of entry started getting lower, and then social media tools started to come out. So it was like I can find my audience without before I even get a record deal. So like, why when I go to a record company do I have to sign all these rights away when I already found my audience through my social media tools and I already know what songs to hit. I don't need the record company executive to sit there and close his eyes and act like he's a hit whisperer. <laughs> like, I already know what it is because the people already chose it. So all of these things started to come out and like through all of that, um, the circumference of all these 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 opportunities, these stress fractures, a uh, united masses was born. Yeah, no, that 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 that's uh, that's amazing. And you know, with the um, record company executives, I actually have a funny story about that. So you know, my brother um, signed this band Train, which um, a lot of you have probably heard of, and. You know, at the time he signed them, you know, they, they had been a big band. They had the song Drops of Jupiter and so forth. And they they had been a big band, but their career had basically died. And they were, um, and Steve, you'll understand this, they were down to playing. They went from like, you know, arenas to playing 500 person clubs. And, mm -hmm. you know, and they were kind of pushing 40 and, you know, it was done. And, you know, so they called my brother because he's kind of, you know, he's, kind of known for being able to like find something in, in people whose careers can be over. And he said, well, send me your songs. And so they sent him 10 songs and he goes, this is all the songs you have. And they were like, no, those are all the songs that the record company executives said were good. He says, well, why don't you send me all your songs? So they sent him like 200 songs. And one of the songs is this song, Hey Soul Sister. And my brother goes, what about this song? And they go, well, the record company guys rejected it. He's like, we're going to build the whole album around the song. The song ended up being the biggest song in the history of Warner Music, I think. <laughs> and they rejected it because they thought it was stupid. So it's not necessarily a value add that those guys pick your songs. Uh, ben, there's so many stories of that. I mean, you can go, <laughs> yeah. you, you can go on and on you know, of stories where somebody told some money, it wasn't a hit. You gotta understand, the record business had this hold on radio where, you know, they could say whatever they want. Um, radio and paying for radio and savers to get radio has been the moat that record companies have had. Like, oh, we can get you on radio. As soon as you'd go challenge them and say, what can you do outside of money? They would say radio. And um, as music had gone digital and the DSPs, Apple and Spotify had started to grow, radios become less impactful, less impactful at breaking an artist. So the idea of saying like, are you gonna get me on radio became less meaningful. But that was the, that was the hole that the record companies had for years. Like, man, we, we have radio. The way they had radio was, was, through, was through money, <laughs> was through like, you know, a lot of money, and, and it was either like, it went, like, it kept on figuring out new ways to, to give them money. It went from brown bags to, you know, giving the artists, you know, up for free to do a radio show and the radio station charges for the ticket. So they got money through the fan, but they got the artists for low cost. So they made the money that way versus like just the old school brown bag way.
But like, it was just a constant version of you do this for me, I do this for you, you do this for me, I do this for you. And that monopoly has gotten broken up. It's really, um, it's a brand new day for artists. And, you know, with United Masters, it's not about like, oh, forget the record companies, they, they don't even have a place anymore. But like, it's certainly going to change their deals. Their deals have to change. Their model has to change. They can't just build a business on owning people's rights in perpetuity. That's over with. And it creates this opportunity that you can choose whether you, if you believe in yourself, you can own your works. You don't have to sign your works away at all and distribute your music and get, you know, premium services without signing your rights away. And that's what I built United Masters for. And like when we, when we first went through the model, Ben, you know, in the beginning, it was how are we going to build, how are we going to get data scientists to figure out like how to, you know, really let's get the streaming data and then break that down and then, you know, find the, the fans of the person who streamed the song so that they could sell them directly the higher margin item in a click. Like it became, we were, we were going through many different iterations of solving this problem. Um, and and we're, we're going to continue to go through iterations to solve the problem because, you know, I firmly believe that the artists should know who their fans are. And that connection should be something that the artist owns and that they are able to monetize. No different than the gaming business. They know who their fans are. They know who their whales are. And they're able to monetize them at a greater efficiency. And the artist should be able to do that with merch and tickets or NFTs or whatever it may be that technology unlocks for the rights holder. So tell us a little bit about... um that part about building the, the technical part of the company because you had a background in music, you had a background in advertising, but you know, to build the record company in your pocket, that's a technology problem. And to kind of solve the CRM problem, that's a technology problem. So as an entrepreneur, uh, how'd you go about that? Like what were some of the challenges? I mean, many challenges. Oh my God. Okay. So man, I have, um, the stories are crazy, but you know, the first thing I did was I spent a, my schedule was I'd, I'd be in New York Monday, Wednesday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, I'd fly Wednesday afternoon to San Francisco. I'd have a dinner Wednesday night. I'd meet with every subject matter expert on Thursday and Friday, and then like come back to New York, see my family and do that week time over time. Or I'd come to San Francisco and just stay for extended periods of time, meeting technical talent, founders. And really, what I found out in the process was that um, engineers were very similar to producers. Like the great producers of music and engineers um, was extremely similar. And that, I felt comfort in that because I was coming in from the outside and, 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 and finding engineers and, and trying to get into the understanding of what makes an engineer tick and, 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 and inspired to work on solving a problem was something I didn't know. Um, and, and it took me a few years staying out in San Francisco and meeting this talent to unlock the, the, the understanding of, of what would connect. Um, you know, that's interesting a, because I watched that show, uh, Hip Hop Evolution, and when I was watching Grandmaster Flash, um, go through his process and go through how he was as a kid. I was like, oh my God, that guy's an engineer. 
<laughs> like he, he just oh. trying to figure out how the washing machine worked and <laughs> all these kinds of things and taking everything apart and like like it's a story of every kind of engineer kid is kind of dismantled every uh, mechanical device in his house when he was when he was young. So like well, just hearing well, him tell that story is well, exactly the, other thing the same that was, personality. The other thing that was great was you know when we went away to the Google. I was you know at the Google event that I was. You, you got me invited to um, yeah. when I, you know, the idea was pitched to Larry Page and he immediately gravitated towards solving the problem. And like, it was getting Larry's sort of buy-in on like solving that problem. And then when you, um, you know, when I first met with Mark and started explaining it to Mark and Mark, you got into it. In fact, Mark, you referred our first engineering hire. And it was like, if I didn't have the backbone of an A16 and, and, and a Google at that time, like there was no way I was going to solve this problem because break coming in from the outside was never going to be um, something that was going to get me the best technical talent at all. And you can't solve this problem without the best technical talent. Um, and I realized that uh, early on and I believed it early on and, and, and that 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 was the investment that paid off because even when we went off to the left and drift to the right, having the best technical talent always kept us on course, always kept us straight. We never, no one, no one could leapfrog us because our product was just going to be better, and we were going to care more, and we were going to like do things that other people who were distributing just didn't have the ability or the financial investment to do. And Ben, you told me something very early on that record companies, you said, don't worry about record companies because they're never going to get great engineers. And I said, why? You said, because they don't give equity. <laughs> <laughs> yep, once, you, like, once okay. you've gone through the rabbit hole, that's it. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, that, that's, a, that's such a really important point. And, um, you know, it's one of the things that... Um, you know, makes Mark and my business work so well is that <clears throat> with software engineering, it's really easy to build or really relatively easy to build a product to spec. So, you know, we've seen so many guys come out of Harvard MBA or Stanford MBA and go, oh, I'll outsource <laughs> uh, my software engineering and I'll hire a few guys and I'll tell them to build this app. But the truth of software is, you know, it's really easy to do that. It's really hard to make something that will scale and you can build on and you can build a business around. You have to think very long term. You have to take the work that you do extremely um, seriously and that you've got to architect things in anticipation of things that are going to happen two, three, four, five years down the road. And nobody is willing to do that for a check. They're only willing to do that for ownership. And that's something that, um, you know, the guys at uh, Bob Noyce actually figured out um, in, uh, in the early 70s uh, with Intel. And, you know, ever since everybody in Silicon Valley works that way, but everybody outside of Silicon Valley who kind of tries to replicate it or outside of kind of virtual Silicon Valley, not necessarily the geography, but outside of that compensation structure, um, fails. And I, 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 Mark, can you think of a single company that 
didn't pay equity to build something good in software? I don't think, I can't think uh, of anybody. You know, actually, you know, the one, the exception, and it, may, it might prove the rule, uh, Bloomberg. Yeah. Oh, right, 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 Bloomberg. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, the, but, <laughs> but their but, software is crazy. I was going to say, it's still a mainframe, it's still a mainframe UI in 2021. So, you know, what does that tell you? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, it's a, they've developed an amazing uh, network effect, but good Lord. <laughs> yeah, that. I like this, by the way, I like this type of talk. Yeah. I like this type of talk. <laughs> <laughs> okay, all right. <laughs> good. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, man, like, pee me up with something. I, I want to talk like Mark. <laughs> yeah, well, okay, I'm going to tee you up. So I'm going to tee you up. So I won a bet. Um, uh, against a very good friend of mine. I'm, I'm not even going to say the bet. <laughs> I'll let him reveal it if he wants to. But uh, I won the bet because of something you, a story you told me, Steve, uh, years ago about um, when, you when you first met Eminem, because Eminem had sold like 40 million albums, and which was more than any other rapper at the time. And you wanted to understand him better. And you went to visit him. And off of that visit, you were probably the first person I spoke to who thought Donald Trump would win in 2016 um, because you had an insight that, like, I mean, none of us in Sally, we, we all thought he was like a crazy joke. Um, but you had an insight um, from your meeting with Eminem that I thought was really, really interesting. And maybe you could share that that meeting and what happened. Well, um, well what I knew very early uh, what I thought was that Eminem could have, when, when, when we were selling music, Eminem would sell, you know, during the CD boom, Eminem would sell 30 million records and like the next good guy would, said, would, would sell like five, you know, and that was like great. And what we realized or what, what, what came back when you looked at SoundScan and whatever the data that was available was, was that Eminem was selling rap music in places that people didn't buy rap music from anybody else. In fact, Eminem was selling rap music to, you know, what was, you know, the, the rural and, you know, suburban white kids. Um, yeah. And rural and suburban uh, white kids that were below the poverty line even. And like no one else could even connect with them. And if you listen to the stuff he was talking about, when you listen to it now, you realize the subject matter connected really strongly with that audience. The, it, and it was, it was his story, and it, it's what he understood. It was his life. And the idea that I felt like was that if Eminem doesn't early enough speak on behalf of the other, uh, um, it was Hillary. Like, if he doesn't, like, go out there and help campaign for her, like, he was the only one that could speak. He was like Elvis. Like, he could speak to that audience and get them fired up and get them to go either way. And, like, I believed that early. Um, and, it, you know, by the time he got to it, it, was, it happened to be too late um, in, the, in the process. But I definitely knew that Eminem could move that same voter that uh, voted for Donald Trump was that same kid 15 years ago that was buying Eminem's music. But the, tell us about the conversation you had with Eminem, because it was a very great insight on uh, 
who those people were and how he saw himself. Well, and you got to re- definitely remind me of that conversation. Okay, so I'm sorry. When he said, uh, who represents me? I'm the most disenfranchised person. My mom, I live in a trailer. My mom's on meth. Yeah, I, well, well, I was interviewing. Yeah. Well, he had said that before. He had said yeah. that before that I was interviewing yeah. him for the tanning of America. And it was yeah. that. It was like, nobody cares about poor white people. Like, the poor white people have no Al Sharpton. Poor white people had no. And I had come to the, when I thought about that, I was like, man, maybe the representative for poor white people were, was like Jerry Falwell. Like, I didn't know who, <laughs> who would be the person that represented the rights of poor white people. And it wasn't until I'd gone through that interview with him that I'd realized that he, he, he had a point that like poor white people, that, that generally speaking, white people turn their backs on poor white people. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was, it was such a, like a, an amazing insight. Um, and just such a crazy story of how, uh, culture works and how he understood like a whole giant audience that nobody else could get to. When you listen to his lyrics and the stuff that he talked about, you know, about, you know, hating his mother and, and, you know, violence with his ex-wife and ex-girlfriend, whatever. I mean, he is a, obviously one of the greatest storytellers, one of the greatest lyricists of all time. Um, And he had just come from a perspective that no one had seen before in rap. You may have heard it in country or something like that. You just never heard it in a rap version of it. And um, because of that, it, it, it certainly opened up a brand new audience, but it also revealed something that I had seen early um, as a person who was studying culture, that um, it, was, it was new and unique uh, that we had not seen uh, before in mainstream um, music. Um, as far as I was concerned. So that's what led to that story. But like going back to the idea of, you know, me coming out to Silicon Valley and, and, and what I, you know, Ben, you know, we, you, we had talked, spent many nights discussing this, that the next disruption was going to come from the convergence of culture, technology, and storytelling. And I remember like all of the guys that I met in Silicon Valley, they like, were unbelievable at technology, there was culture that could have been added to that to really make their products and services fly. And um, we did, early on, I remember me, you, and Mark, we did a a conference at the All-Star Game. And we had all the leaders of, you know, Drake and Jay-Z and LeBron James. And then it was like, you know, you guys rented a, I don't know, I think you guys came out with it with a jet and brought all the Silicon Valley guys out and we had them in the same room now. And they weren't really meshing well because we had done it before we had done it premature, but it was the right idea that would work unbelievable today when we put all those tech guys and all the music guys in the same room. Well, that was actually the origin of, uh, you know, those conversations were the beginning of um, something that we started called the uh, Cultural Leadership Fund, uh, which is run by Chris Lyons um, on our team. Um, but it came from those conversations about, well, what if um, the people who were so good at changing consumer behavior 
uh, worked with the tech companies who are coming out with all these new consumer products, like might that um, be a big deal? And in fact, um, it's been a really big deal for this platform that we're on now, Clubhouse, in that uh, you know a lot of the work that we did at, as a firm early on were bringing people who were you know not tech leaders um, who were actually already on the platform, but culture leaders onto it who actually um, attracted a much, much bigger audience and, uh, you know, invested in the platform and, and got involved and, and did very well with it. Like, actually, I see, I'm going to bring... Uh, I'm about to say, shout out to Paul uh, for even... Yeah, shout out to Paul for recognizing that. Um, yeah. Because that that's a, that's a very critical thing that, you know, it's that it's that convergence of culture and technology that, that makes the difference. And you have culture, technology, and and empathy, and you could go and you can build anything. Yeah, and I, I just brought uh, uh, your friend and mine, uh, MC Hammer, up, who was who was one of those guys who kind of got on the platform early, and uh, you know, and brought that kind of brought those ideas, um, you know, onto it. Hey, how you doing, uh, 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 Ben? I had just uh, I've been listening to the conversation, and uh, you know it's always uh, great, great information. Uh, and I had stepped out real quick and ran to the restroom. Hey, <laughs> 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 Ben. And back, and you were on stage. Yeah, and I'm on stage. But hey, I also wanted to say this. I think Steve and I told you the same thing because I remember that conversation we had uh, concerning the possibility uh, of Trump winning, and uh, we talked about it at dinner about the underrepresentation of uh you know uh, poor white people poor white people in America uh, uh that everybody had a representative right so um i also thought that uh there was a possibility that that underrepresentation would lead to uh, a possible uh trump victory um so i, I think uh, uh uh steve and i uh felt the same way about that um it's it's been great to see what's happening uh with the empowerment of of uh, artists and, you know, what the goal here is at United Masters to, you know, further utilize um, all these technologies, uh, be beginning with obviously you need to own your masters. I mean, uh, that is the key to the liberation. If you don't own your masters, then all, all of this is for naught, everything that we're talking about. So the ability to exploit the ownership of the masters on all these platforms uh, across the ecosystem of the blockchain and, and the NFTs and you know, all of that, and including, uh, uh, you know, today's announcement of, uh, you know, the Clubhouse uh, Institute and Monetization, it means that there is an atmosphere and a culture around technology that is saying the creators are going to be empowered and the creator economy has arrived. And I think that uh, Steve and what he's doing and his partnerships and strategic partnerships um, in, align in alignment with his experience, his history, his network and relationships uh, is a great opportunity for artists uh, to uh, to grab onto the ideology around what he, what's, what's happening and what he's doing. And Steve, maybe you could talk a little bit about, you know, a lot of people said that you couldn't let the artists own their masters because the economics wouldn't work. So how, how does that work? How do the economics, I, I can, uh, you know, say it since I'm an investor, but United Masters is a profitable company, so clearly the the, the economics work. How how is that possible? Well, 
the the the, the um, there's something odd about the artist creative business where if you're an artist, it was almost like you weren't supposed to make a lot of money. It was almost like the artist making a lot of money was the opposite of your intention. <laughs> so <laughs> you know these executives were running around making fortunes of money, um, and the artist was happy just to get on stage and get their name yelled at or be able to express themselves uh, creatively and earn a living. Um, so the margins um, were unfair, and the record company executives, you know, they were guys, they're guys making you know, $15, 20000000 million guaranteed a year during the CD era with no problem. You know, many, I mean, I was making $2.5 million a year. I mean, people were just making money. And so that's, so that's, that's a big part of this that there was so much money being made by the executives because the artists weren't getting paid um, much. The other thing is that when you own the rights, obviously you own the real estate and you can, could sell it in perpetuity. So if the artists were to own the rights, like we do, how could you fix that? Well, one of the things that I didn't even realize um, as I was building out the model was that if you put um, uh, technology uh, around it and the economics where people take lower salaries um, and they got equity, then what would happen is you can get a lot of artists on the platform. You could do volume. You pay out the artists either 90% in our model, they take 90%, you get 10, or you do a subscription fee. And then when you start adding on other services like um, sync uh, or being able to sell items like merch and other things, then what will happen is you will find different ways. As long as you treat the artist good um, and well and equitable all the way through the, 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 the funnel, that you could actually make a very good business um, as long as you're not, your overhead isn't crazy and you're building like the ivory palaces, like record companies. If you didn't do that, that you could actually make a good business, make a living and, and have an, a, a profitable company. But so it was all shifting the economics around so that you give the lion's share to the artist. But of course, you build a cost structure that didn't rely on, you know, people making 15, 20 million dollar salaries. <laughs> yeah, that does help a lot. <laughs> I was saying 15 million dollars. Let me go one yeah. step further. No, it's, 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 it's 15, 20 million dollar salaries with five year contracts. It's athletes. They get paid like athletes. They literally get paid. You know, five, $15 million a year and a five-year contract. So, like, they're locked in to the idea of the model. They're not breaking the model. They're not incentivized to change the model. You know, that, that's why it's a hard business to break because, you know, you got so many executives that are just non-entrepreneurs and married and incentivized to that model and market share. So they just spend the money do whatever they got to do to maintain their market share position um, and keep that idea going. But they, they, it, it, you can't stop it now. It's just too late. It, there's more supply and demand than any record company can handle. I mean, there's 60,000 songs going up a day on Spotify. I mean, the, the, the songs that are coming out every day, the independent music community outside of United Masters, I mean, the independent music community is the fastest growing segment in the business. When I first went out to Silicon Valley, 
Like nobody wanted to invest in music because everyone had gotten burned. Record companies burned them all. Like you'd sit there with an artist, you'd have a conversation with them. They would tell you, this is what we're going to do. And then all of a sudden, two weeks later, you found out that the artist told you to do something and they had no right to tell you anything. They don't own their name or their masters. They don't own shit. Like they don't even have the right to speak on it. Um, it's not theirs. And yeah. of course, that was something that no one in Silicon Valley understood. So all the models that were coming out in the music business at the time that Silicon Valley was investing in would go back to the record company. And then all of a sudden, the idea couldn't come off the ground. So the first thing I knew when I was building United Masses is it couldn't be tethered to a record company. It couldn't be tethered to anybody except the artists themselves. And, you know, early on, it was tough. People didn't believe in it. I mean... I'm not talking about, I'm talking about the industry itself didn't believe in it. The industry believed there was no way they could break free. And, you know, over the last, I would say over the last two years, it's accelerated. And I think there's a lot of things like that, whether it be a, a, a Substack or other platforms that are creative-led first, over the last 18 months they have taken off because the world has just shifted in that direction. Yeah, no, no question. Now that's a... It's a great point. It's kind of the removal. It's the promise of uh, of the internet, um, quite frankly. And I, I remember Mark. You know, years at the very beginning, everybody kind of said, "Okay, this is the end of the middleman." <laughs> but it's taken a while. And um, why do you think it's taken so long? Actually, question for Mark. Yeah, yeah, no, it's one of those things where it was it was fairly obvious. Like it was the 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 idea was in the air uh, early, but you know, like like Steve said, like you know, basically just like the, the existing systems just have enormous momentum. They just have you know enormous entrenched advantage. Um, you know, that kind of compounds over time, and so they've got you know these giant distribution advantages. They've got these giant, you know, these these all these rights, all these legal you know kind of uh, systems. By the way, they also frequently have right, regulatory capture. Right, they frequently <laughs> capture the government. They have, you know, antitrust exemptions. They have, you know, statutory you know, pricing, you know, collusion. You know, basically collusion. You know, one of the one of the sort of you know most amazing things in the music industry as this was all happening, which I'm sure Steve Steve <laughs> recalls in vivid detail, was the uh, the antitrust case against the uh, music labels uh, for the uh, pricing of CDs, um, mm -hmm. right? Which were which were mysteriously all priced at sixteen dollars, um, you know, for, <laughs> for for a very long time. Um, and so they, they just, you know, the, the status quo incumbents just have these giant structures. Um, and then, it, and then it just, it, it, it takes time. It, it takes time to chip away at them. And then it, it takes people who actually have like a extremely focused plan, you know, to be able to kind of, you know, find a crack and then wiggle into it and then, and then wind it out and turn it into something big. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's amazing. And it, well, it's amazing that we're seeing it, uh, you know, in so many of these long time, I mean, Substack is another one where, you, you know, and they're just getting started, but they have, you know, giant companies, uh, you know, 100-year-old companies in a panic um, because yeah. they can see what's going on, <laughs> that all those high salaries, all those people, all that nepotism uh, is, is very fragile at the end of the day. Yeah, well, Substack actually, it's, you know, so you bring that up, like it's an interesting comp actually to what Steve's talking about comparison because like, you know, they, they, you know the, the huge thing on like price fixing as CDs was, you know, you maybe wanted your one, the one song or the two songs or the three songs, you know, on the disc, but you had that, you, you know, you had to buy the entire disc for $16 and, you know, for 10 or 12 songs, including all the ones you didn't want. Um, and of course, you know, we're also describing how newspapers work, right? We're also describing how magazines work. 
right? Which is basically like if you know if there's a writer or two writers or th three writers you like, you can't just like sponsor them. You have to you have to buy the whole thing. And so that you know yeah, there is this, right, the there's this sort of yeah. yep. There's and then it, it turns out right. It turns out right. Just like in music, it turns out that one thing that you like is like much much more important than the rest. And it, you know, in Substacks, I think is showing the same thing in writing. Which is, it turns out, like that one writer you really like, who works for you know a certain newspaper, like is actually worth more to you than the entire newspaper. Um, Mark, right, is, Mark, right. Mark, hey, yeah, Mark. They they knew that in the record business. In fact, yeah. the, you speak about collusion. The record business they used to sell singles. Yep. There was a time when you can just buy the song you liked, and then they said, "Why would we sell that? Just no one sell that anymore. Make it unavailable." Right. And they right. made it, you couldn't buy the single song you liked anymore. You had to buy the whole thing. They just, they just eliminated that product category called the single song. Um, yep. And when they did that, you know, look, I was explaining the movie industry last night. Think about the movie industry, you know, where we'd go to the movie theater, watch a movie, and then buy the big laser discs for $90. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, think about the margin in that. Yep. Yep. I bought a lot of those at one point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mark had a big collection of those, the laser discs. They, they did have beautiful resolution. You know, I think members, <laughs> they did, they were gorgeous. Um, they, um, the, um, what, five generations ago now or something. Um, so I think there's another thing actually, Ben, you know, on the question you, you brought up, which is the other thing you have now. So, you know, we're whatever, 25 years into the kind of consumer internet, you know, as you said, like a lot of these structural changes are really happening right now. You know, I think the other thing you have is I think you have, and I think both the music businesses like this, and I think maybe also the, the publishing industries like this, which is what Substack is finding, which is you have incumbents who believe that they've adapted, right? And so, right. like, if, right, if, if we were talking to, like, you know, 20 years ago, the incumbents were like, you know, holy shit, like, we need to adapt. We're, we're not adapted, right? You know, 99.9% of our business is, is offline. Like, you know, oh, my God, we have to, like, do all these structural changes, or we have to yeah. fight these changes and try to outlaw everything, or, like, you know, whatever. But, like, the adaptation is still in front of us. You know, I would imagine, you know, Steve, you tell me, but I imagine if you talk to a music label, you know, an incumbent music label CEO today, he'll tell you that he has adapted and he'll probably point oh, to Oh, 100%. Mark, you, right. Mark, you, that's why you're Mark. Mark, they just bought, Sony bought a company called AWOL, Artists Without a Label. They paid $400 <laughs> million for a company that basically says, fuck you guys. The name of our company is the opposite of you. And <laughs> now all of a sudden those artists on AWOL have a label. They just only bought another company out of France, uh, Brazil today. They closed on a company called Som Libre, which is an independent Brazilian label. They, they, they know this. They think they're solving this problem by buying the fastest growing segments, which are this you know, independent industry. And look, they can do that. But the fact of the matter is, once they move off their model, they're playing a different ball game. Right. And you know what? I got. I could say it on the clubhouse. I got the backing of Alphabet, Andreessen, and Google. They don't have more money than me, so <laughs> I'm not worried about what they're doing. Because once it gets into the game of, can you buy the assets and build the company? Like we have the model and we have the the mission. They're just doing it to save their lives. We're doing it because we're changing the business forever. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Mark had a great line years ago. Um, I, I can't even remember the context, but uh, what he said is, when an alligator fights a bear, the victor is determined by the terrain. 
Exactly. And I think that's exactly what's going on here is the, you know, the record companies are moving on to your terrain and they can't survive there. I had a question, Steve. Um, Fab, what's know, happening? What up, what up, what up, Ben? What up, Mark, Amber, Steve? I'm curious about as, as, as these revolutionary changes are, are underway, your thoughts about artist development, particularly with United Masters, it feels like, I don't know, it, it, it's it's not too much in existence. I'm curious about your thoughts on how that plays into this new evolving yeah. industry. So you know what? I'm going to tell you. There's there's two sides to that story, Fab, and that's a great, great question. And I think about that often. A lot of times, what a record company called artist development was actually changing the artist from what they was when they signed them. Like. A lot of artists didn't need development. They just needed the freedom to be themselves. Uh, and the record company called it artist development, like make the song this format so they can get on the radio, do it like this, you know, play the guitar in your video like this, so therefore it would be more commercially viable. But it, they called that artist development, but it was actually doing a lot of disservice to an artist. Now, is there artist development that's beneficial? Absolutely, for sure. It is a lost art in the industry. It is a lost art in the industry because the idea of artist development is with social media dominating the footprint, the artist is already, you know, they're the best marketers of themselves. They're immediately putting out their image and likeness and their profile. So by the time you get to them, they've already sort of established a sense of who they are. I do believe there are artists out there, specifically with United Masters, that are super talented, that with artist development can go all the way. And it is my responsibility, the company's responsibility, to identify those artists and give those artists uh, the, 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 the marketing push and the artist development um, um, uh, push in order to help them go further. But um, overall, in the industry, with labels, or independence, it has become a lost art for, for various reasons that I've just outlined. I feel I feel labels. I I just I feel like things that Motown did um, in the classic sense. I mean, even in even in like our era, the things that Andre did at Uptown or people that did it well. I feel like it's it's something that's kind of needed because there's so much sameness around a lot of what the younger cats are doing, which is cool for them to be, you know, to want to do it, do it their way. But you know how strategic it was for, for, for like people to go, okay, here's how we're going to do it. Here's a game plan. And to really change and to help break out of these, out of these molds, which are so similar these days. 100%. You know, Fab, I think we might be a victim of our era um, you know, what Steve said earlier was that there are 60,000, you know, songs being uploaded a day. In our era, you know, we could pick out any city in America, and you'd be lucky if you knew two people from your city that were getting into the music business. So there, so at that time, artist development was, a, you know, a, a, a very necessary. But today, these artists are developing their talent based on the appetite of their generation. And so unlike ours, it's, it's a different ball game. And they come, as Steve just said, they come with a built-in following. 
they come with, you know, uh, understanding these tools to market, promote uh, 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 themselves. So the artist development um, is not as much an asset uh, as it would have been in the past. Now, again, depending on your taste of what you're looking for, you might think their, you know, artist development may be necessary. But I think today the biggest, you know, the, the, the biggest uh, artist development is to have a system where is when you work your way through and you rise to that top 5%, then you have somebody with the expertise uh, of Steve and the people at United Master who can say, okay, I know this ball game. I'll get you from here to the major leagues and to the all-stars. I, listen, Fab, I, listen, thank you, Cam. Like, Fab, I, I agree with you. We, we can't – look, man, when, when you – and let's like move on, but like when you remove photos and – album liner notes and thank yous and all of the things that made you fall in love with an artist, a music artist, when those things are gone, you, you got to understand like the unintended effect of that is so many different things. Like they become, you know, artists become, you know, more single driven than our album driven because you don't even know what song number seven is anymore. You remember, you listen to an album, song number seven and eight and nine really told you the, the, the introspective of the artist. You don't, the, the, those things don't, don't exist the way they used to exist anymore. And um, it's a very hit-driven industry. Um, and it's a very singles-driven industry. And artist development in single-driven industries are not necessarily on the same side the entire time. Um, but when you do develop and you put together a, a, a series of hits, then artist development and that level of white glove service in order to take that artist over the top is necessary and important. Um, and, you know, I, I say I use this artist. I'm proud of him. Um, and there's so much that he does on his own. Um, but I definitely help him anytime we can from an artist development and opportunity standpoint is Toby Negwe. And he's gone, you know, you know, he's a, he's become a major star um, as a result of, you know, all the work he's done and his talent and and then, you know, opportunities and white glove service that we've provided him. Wow, great. Also, I want to say, Mark, I've still got a bunch of my laser discs as well. And ironically, <laughs> my daughter thought they were albums because she'd hear me talk about I want to get some albums, you know, vinyl. And she brought me a record player um, two Christmases ago and said, but dad, you know, that big box of albums upstairs. And I said, no, baby, those are laser discs. <laughs> <laughs> have you, hey, Fab, have you shown her how to use one of those old rotary telephones yet? Actually, no, I don't even have a, a rotary <laughs> telephone around. That's a good one. Wow. I think that's, that's, a, I think that's what you and I both feel like right now. Well, I got the, the uh, you know, Ben, we, we talked about something earlier, and um, it's about, like, the tech edge. I do believe, going forward, that every artist or um, has needs to have access to a, a technical solution, a, a, a CTO, uh, so to speak, because everything that you're seeing coming out of for owners and uh, copyright owners and uh, to authenticate owners is built around technology, and a lot of artists, they need a CTO. They need access to that. They have no understanding on how to actually make that 
uh, unlock the full value of their ownership. And the, having the technical edge, which is what we're going to continue to build at United Masters, gives us a, a strong advantage in the marketplace. And it's because of um, having access to partners like Apple and Google and Andreessen Horowitz specifically that 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 allows that. And I and I knew very early on when I was building the company to what my strong suit was and where my weaknesses were. And my weaknesses were around, you know, getting to um, engineers and product and best in class thinking on how to solve difficult problems um, with 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 you know engineering. And um, it was this relationship that we have that has us on this call right now that has helped unlock that value. So I can't thank you guys enough for all you've done to help the company and help us get to this point right now. All right, this is great. And, um, so this has been a great conversation. Mark, I, I do have to tell you one thing. So Mark's a big jazz fan and um, Fab's godfather is Max Roach, the great jazz drummer and was a close part of his family. So I, <laughs> I thought you needed to know that. Fantastic. Um, and uh, I think with that, um, we should keep it tight and wrap up the room. Um, I want to thank everybody. I want to thank Steve and Hammer and Fab and, uh, and then everybody who is up here earlier warming up the room. We appreciate you all. Um, Felicia, we thank are, you very excited about the future of music and where it's going with United Masters. And thank you all so much for coming.